You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, did you know that the human body has about 10,000 taste buds and these taste buds all have microscopic hairs, kind of kind of gross when you think about it, but there are these tiny microscopic hairs or receptors that send signals to the brain telling us that, that something is salty or maybe sweet or, or even bitter. And then our noses have little receptors as well that send chemicals to the brain. And one of the things that, that has struck me about that is that food is not just something to be consumed, but food is something to be enjoyed. And so it, it seems like one of those unnecessary things, you know, when you think about consuming food or drink, I mean, on one level, it, it feels like we could just have those things without enjoying them and they would just serve the purpose of fueling us or sustaining us. And yet God has wired us in such a way that food is not just fuel for us, but, but it's enjoyment. There's pleasure that comes with eating. And so you, you just notice that as we think about eating and drinking some of our favorite foods or going to a restaurant, it's, it's not just to strengthen us or to sustain us, but there's an enjoyment. There's a pleasure in that. You know, when our kids were young, as you know, we, we have four kids. And so when our kids were pretty young, we developed a mission statement, just a very simple mission statement for our family. And I thought, gosh, if, if Coke or Pepsi or the church has a mission statement, why doesn't the family? And so we just kind of crafted a very simple mission statement for our family. And along with that, we created just a handful of core values for our family. It just would really help us kind of navigate those early years, especially of parenting. And one of the core values that we established and did a much better job of, of really maintaining when our kids were younger was the rhythm of eating together on a regular basis. I grew up in a home where we ate dinner at five o'clock every single night. Didn't matter what we were doing, where we were at, we oftentimes would eat at 5 p.m. almost without exception. And so that was a, a rhythm that I grew up in. Every day, every week, every month, we were gathered together and we would eat, we'd share a meal. And so as a family, we, we did the same thing. And of course, as our kids have gotten older, it's become more and more challenging as schedules get busier and busier. But we still, to this day, when we have that opportunity, enjoy eating together and drinking together and just sitting around a table talking laughing, no cell phones, looking into each other's eyes, sometimes giving each other a hard time, but there's this rhythm of eating and drinking, of enjoying a meal and spending time together. It's not surprising then that when you come to the biblical narrative, when you come to the scriptures, you see what a prominent place food and drink has throughout God's story. And let me just give you a couple of examples of that before we dive into our passage that we're gonna look at today. But here's just a couple examples. We could point to a lot more, but think about Exodus chapter 24, for example, in the Old Testament, where God calls the leaders of Israel up the mountain to reestablish that covenant with Israel. And there's 70 of the elders and there's Moses and there's Aaron there. And one of the things that he does on top of that mountain is he's reestablishing that covenant, that relationship with Israel and her leaders is he has a meal with them. He eats and drinks with them. In fact, verse 11 says that they saw God and they ate and drank. Uh, think about the example of Israel in her wilderness wanderings, 40 years wandering through the desert. And what does God do? God feeds his people. He gives them bread each day and he sustains them. And 
strengthens them and he brings forth drink, water from a rock, and he gives them exactly what they need every single day by feeding them. You know, one of our first descriptions of what the church is doing when she gathers together is found in Acts chapter 2. And one of the things that you notice about that short description of the early church gathering in a home is that they're eating and drinking together. They're taking communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, among other things. Think about the Gospels, for example. It's been said that Jesus is either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And so much so that he's oftentimes accused by his enemies, the religious leaders, of being a glutton and a drunkard. There's so much that Jesus teaches about God's kingdom around a meal, around food and drink. And you think about Jesus' promise also of a coming banquet that he'll eat with us again. Whatever heaven is going to look like, there's, there's different layers of, of understanding that, that Jesus teaches about heaven. But one of those things that we know that he teaches about heaven is that heaven will be like a great banquet. It'll be a great meal. It'll be gathering together with friends and family members, with God's church. Those who've gone before us will be reunited and we'll sit at a table together and we'll eat and drink. There'll be pleasure and enjoyment as we share that meal together. And so as you look at the scriptures, you see over and over again that, that food and drink play a prominent role. And so as we dive back into our study through 1 Corinthians today, one of the things that we're going to look at is this instruction to, to eat and drink together on a regular basis. We call it the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. If you come from a, a different tradition, you might refer to it as the Eucharist, which just means thanksgiving. And so the church for 2,000 years has followed in Jesus's footsteps and obeyed his command to remember him by eating and drinking, by sharing a meal, by taking that bread and drinking that cup in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. And so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and pull it out. You can turn to that, that passage of Scripture right now. And one of the things that Paul is going to do is he's writing to this church in Corinth. He's sorting out divisions and you know sexual immorality. I mean, all of these things we've talked about early on in our series but one of the things he's going to do in chapter 11 and really chapters 12 through 14 is he's going to, to kind of really sort out and, and correct some of their, their misunderstandings and, and their disorderly, disorderliness in, in public worship. And so he's going to talk about men and women, their relationship to one another, head coverings. And chapters 12 through 14, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. But here in chapter 11, the passage we're going to look at, is he's going to address how they've, they've turned eating and drinking into something different than what Jesus had instructed and what God desires for his people, the church. And so just by way of summary, or at least maybe a, a quick overview of where we're going, Paul is going to address this group of Christians who are eating and drinking, and, and as they do so, there's division, and the rich are oppressing the poor, and they're celebrating communion, but Paul's going to say very clearly, what you think you're doing is, is really not what you're doing. You, you might think you're partaking in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion, but, but that's not true at all because of the division and disregard you have for one another. And he's going to address some of the problems that he sees as they're gathering around a table. And so what I want to do is we look at verses 17 through 34 is highlight four things that we need to remember when we eat and drink together. There's so much more we could say, but I want to highlight four things in particular as we look at this passage together 
that I think is important for us to remember as we eat and drink in the Lord's Supper, but also when we eat and drink in general. You know, Thomas Aquinas, the, the famous medieval theologian, great doctor of the church, um, once wrote and commented that, that Jesus gives us this bread and this wine, these physical objects, these material objects, because of our condition, because of our estate, and also because of our actions. And what he meant by that is that, that Jesus gives us this material thing called bread and the cup because we're material beings, we're body and soul. And so we need material things to, to understand or to help us understand what God has done for us. Um, because of our estate, I mean, we were oftentimes led astray by material things. And so we need these material things to bring us back to center, to focus us, on, focus us on Jesus and what he's done for us. And so I want to highlight four things that we need to remember as we take and eat of these material things, the, these physical things, as we put them in our body, what do we need to remember that Jesus has done for us and is doing in us and through us? Here's the first thing. We need to remember what Jesus is building. Let's look first at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 22. Paul will start out this passage and he'll say, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. So he really starts out on a very positive note. Uh, in your meetings, your meetings, they, they do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I, I believe it. And so Paul starts out by saying, I don't have anything positive to say about you. When you gather together for your corporate worship services, I don't have anything positive to say that there, there's things going on within your community and relationships that I just can't praise you for. And so he really starts out in a, in a pretty strong and powerful way. He goes on, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And he's essentially saying that these divisions, this dysfunction, this disorderliness actually is being used by God to expose those who are walking in faithfulness and truth and those who are not. Uh, he goes on, so then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. You know, Roman banquets with drinking parties afterwards were quite common in the, the Greco-Roman world, and they were certainly common in Corinth, where Paul was writing to this church. And you sort of think about game day, you know, in Ann Arbor. I mean, this is a house party. There's eating and drinking. And, and Paul was essentially saying that, that they were being influenced by the culture around them, that some of these practices of eating together in a home and giving preference to those of a higher social status versus those of a lower social status were, were seeping into the practice, the liturgy, the, the rhythms of the church, and he wanted to correct that. You know, when I was growing up, one of the most terrifying days was the first day of school. And when I think about junior high or high school, you know, I went to a large public school in Fort Wayne, and we didn't just have one lunch period, we had multiple lunch periods. And you didn't always know who was going to be in what lunch period. So I didn't always know what, which of my friends uh, was going to be in which lunch period. I just remember, especially in junior high and really even into high school, being kind of nervous about that, uncomfortable about that. It was challenging to walk into a lunchroom and not know where you were going to sit, for example. Who was going to be there, whether somebody was going to make space for you or not at their lunch table. There was a 
an issue of, of am I going to fit in? Am I going to belong? Or am I going to have to sit at a table by myself? And this is really what's going on in Corinth. I mean, instead of the, the church being one and being unified, there, there's division. I mean, the church that Jesus died for was being divided. And so historians tell us that, that homes at that time were built with a dining room that, that could house anywhere from nine to 20 people. And you would have these house parties and the host would invite people over. And oftentimes those that were of a higher social status would eat in that dining room. They would eat and drink in that dining room uh, and they were served the, the better food where the, the folks that were of a lower social status, they were not given the best of food and they typically did not eat with the host. And this is exactly what is influencing the gathering and the eating of this early church. And so we read in verse 17, for example, that he has no praise, excuse me, has no praise for them. There's divisions among you, Paul says in verse 18. Verse 19, he says these, diver, these divisions actually serve a purpose to show who has God's approval and who doesn't. He tells them what they, what they think they, they're calling the Lord's Supper is no such thing in verse 20. And then in verse 21, he says, should I praise you? Absolutely not. I mean, he starts out by reminding them primarily that Jesus is building a new family. And this family centered around the person and the work of Jesus is a family where, where every barrier has been broken down. And this division between the rich and the poor and the Jew and the Gentile and, and those who have and those who have not, like all of that has been obliterated and torn down that we're one family or we're supposed to be one family. You know, one of the things I love about um, serving communion where, where we have to go forward to the front is that you get to see people going forward. You get to see your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know that's not always possible to do, especially at GBC where our, our church is, is larger. Sometimes it can be difficult to do that. But, but if you've ever been in an environment, a church service where you, where you have to go forward, you have the advantage of seeing other people, that communion, eating and drinking is not just something that I do, but it's something that we're doing together. And as a pastor, I just love being able to, to sit back or to stand back and to see people go forward. I can see the person who is praying and longing for God to, to open their womb and, and to have a child. I can see the the brother or the sister who just got a promotion or is starting a new job or got into the school that they really desired and they're experiencing that season of, of blessing and excitement and, and joy. I mean, you get to see every range of emotion and, and things going on in the family and you get to rejoice with people and you're reminded that we really are one family. We've been united in Christ. We we have unity, and so we have to protect that unity. So the first thing that we do when we eat and drink, when we come to the table, is we remember what Jesus is building. He's building a church. He's building a family where we're brothers and sisters. We really do belong to one another. We celebrate with one another, but we also mourn and grieve with one another. We're committed to one another. We make allowances for one another's sins. We, we stay in community. We stay loyal to one another and committed to one another. We give the benefit of the doubt to one another. And what a challenge that is in the culture that we're living in over the last couple of years. It's so easy to get offended. It's so easy to isolate ourselves. It's so easy to write people off. And yet Jesus is building a family. He's building unity 
within his church, and we remember that, especially as we come and we eat and drink. Here's the second thing we need to remember. Um, We need to remember what Jesus has done for us. Look at verses 23 through 26. Paul will go on to say, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. One of the things that that we need to do as we eat and drink, as we come to the table, is remember not only what Jesus has done for us in his sacrificial death on the cross, but, but remember why he did it. And Jesus was, was glad to suffer for us. This is what love does. Love suffers for those that it loves. And so you think about as a husband, you, you love, you, you gladly suffer and, and sacrifice for your spouse because you love them. You think about a friendship where you gladly suffer and sacrifice for them because you love them. And so one of the things that the Bible talks about is the different ways that that God loves us. And so you just think about the many different layers and the language that that God uses to describe His love for us. For example, His love is like the love of a father. His love is like the tenderness of a mother, the Scriptures say. And His love is like like the love of a husband and wife. And all of these things are reminding us that Jesus not only died for us, but He was glad to die for us. It was His love that held Him there on the cross. And so when we eat and drink, we remember what Jesus did for us, but we also remember why he did it. I love the quote by Peter Kraft. He says it this way, he came, referring to Jesus, he entered space and time and suffering. He came like a lover. He did the most important thing and gave the most important gift himself. It is a lover's gift out of our tears, our waiting, our darkness, our agonized aloneness, out of our weeping and wondering, out of our cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He came all the way right into that cry. And so when we eat and we drink, we, we remember what Jesus did for us. He gives us the bread and he gives us the cup as a reminder that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us out of our love for us, out of our need to be forgiven, but ultimately out of our need to experience intimacy with God. You know, as important as forgiveness is and reconciliation is, the ultimate goal of forgiveness and and reconciliation is that we might have friendship with God again. We might have intimacy with Him. I mean, forgiveness is our greatest need, but but forgiveness is meant to, to bring us back to what it was that we were created for. We were created to know God and to love God and to serve God, to to have intimacy with Him, to know Him, and to be known by Him. And so the answer, the question for us is, how do we respond to that love? And one of the ways that we respond to that love as we think about what He did for us is we we live as trusting children of God, knowing that, that He's looking out for us, that we have His favor, that He desires what is best for us. And so this is another thing that we're called to remember as we take and we eat. Here's the third thing that we need to remember as we come and we eat and drink at the Lord's table at Eucharist or at communion. We need to remember what Jesus is demanding. When I was in high school, we would get together before school and we could come early. The gym was open and I played basketball my freshman year, my 
sophomore and junior year. And, and so we had these open gyms before school. And I think I've shared before that I was a part of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was the treasurer. I never saw a dime, so I'm not really sure. I think they just felt sorry for me and gave me a title so that I would feel important. They knew how fragile I was. And so I was the treasurer, but I, but I was you know pretty vocal about being a follower of Jesus. And, and there were several times in these open gyms where I'd get so frustrated playing and you know, I'd, I'd maybe get into an argument with somebody that, that I was competing against. And I remember one particular day where I just took the basketball, I got so frustrated and I just took it and I, and I punted the ball, I, I kicked it and, and it bounced off the ceiling. I mean, it, it was a terrible shot. It, would, it was a great you know, field goal attempt. The problem is it was the wrong sport. And I remember one of the coaches that was there kind of supervising the gym. He was a Christian teacher and he was a part of FCA as well. And I remember later him pulling me aside and challenging me on my witness that here I was the treasurer of FCA and, and I was a known follower of Jesus. And yet in that moment or those series of moments, I was not acting like one. And that sounds so simple. It sounds so small. But as a high school student who was still trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus and to respond to what he had done for me, I realized that there was an inconsistency in my Life And I struggle with this word demanding. We need to remember what Jesus is demanding. But I do think it's the right word. Jesus is, is full of grace and he's full of love and he's full of tenderness. And in his incarnation, in his first coming, he comes and, and he's careful not to, to, to break that bruised reed. And he's gentle with us and patient with us. And yet we also see this picture of Jesus at the end of the New Testament who comes in power. He's got fire in his eyes and he's got a a tattoo, if you will, down, his, uh, down the side of his leg that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, he's dressed in white and he's full of power and glory. And so when you think about what Jesus has accomplished for us in his first coming and what he'll do when he comes again, I mean, I think it's a right expression that, that he demands a response, that Jesus is not interested in us just discussing him or studying him. Ultimately, what he's after is us making a decision about him. Will we give our life to him? And will we take up our cross daily and, and die to who we used to be, to come alive to who he created us to be and who he wants us to be? And you see this language often here in First and Second Corinthians. In fact, Paul will use this word examine both in 1 Corinthians 11 and also in, his, uh, in the next book, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Here's what he says in that book, and then I'll come back to our passage. But he says this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you have failed to meet the test or unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I mean, Paul doesn't want us to be insecure about our relationship with Christ. He doesn't want us to walk around on eggshells. But he's also very forthright that, that all those who claim to know Christ and walk with him aren't always those who really are following Christ. And so he says, examine yourself. Take a, a hard look, an honest reflection or inventory on your life. I mean, he'll go on here in, in 1 Corinthians 11, this passage that we're looking at already, and this is what he'll say. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body. And blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Here's that word examine again. He uses it in our passage here in 1 Corinthians 11. He uses it in 2 Corinthians 13. Paul wants us to take a hard look at our life and to ask the question, is my life consistent 
with this meal. He's not asking for you and I to, to be perfect or to only come to him in our perfection. He's asking us to, to come in honesty and confession and humility. He's asking us to bring our struggle to the table and to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. But he is asking us to take an honest examination of our heart. And is my life consistent with the meal, with the bread and with the cup? And so communion or the Eucharist is always a great opportunity for the confession of sin. To take a look at all of the things in our life that may be dead and dying, that are robbing us of the life that Jesus wants to give us. Jesus demands so much of us because he's done so much for us, but he also demands so much for us because he knows what is best for us. And if we forget that, then, then as we think about Jesus demanding from us our religious life, our spiritual life will become, it will become rigid. It'll become um, you know, sort of out of this, this sense of, of oughtness or, or I should do this or I shouldn't do that. But if we understand Jesus's demand is for our good, then we'll recognize that he is like that lover who is calling us into an intimate relationship with us. And his demands are kind and they're good and they're for our benefit. He, he desires for us to know the life that he wants to give us. And so when we come and we eat, we're remembering what Jesus is building. We're also remembering what Jesus has done for us, and we're remembering what Jesus is demanding. Lastly, and I'll close with this, we need to remember what Jesus is offering. You know, the Bible describes humanity as hungry and thirsty. One example of this is found in the Old Testament passage. Uh, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 2, we read this, come, to all, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the riches of fare. God's love for Israel and the church is described in spousal love. I mean, there's nothing in God that needs us, but everything in God thirsts for us. God is not lacking in anything. There's this eternal and infinite love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The overflow of this Trinitarian love really does um, create in us th this longing to be fully satisfied in God's love for us. He wants relationship with us. And the scriptures describe God's love in this way, in this spousal term the groom and the bride. And so our desire for God in many ways is really the echo of God's desire for us. And so what does love want? Love wants union, love wants intimacy. And when we take and eat and when Jesus offers his body in his blood, he's really offering himself to us. He's saying, come and eat and drink and be satisfied. There is nobody else there is nothing else that can satisfy me in the way that my love can satisfy you. And in this way, our hunger and our thirst really tell us more about our soul than it does our stomach. Our hunger and thirst really tell us more about our soul than it does our stomach. And so for a moment, just sort of pan back. We, we've talked about what it means for us as a church to take and eat, to come to the table but if you just sort of pan back and think more broadly about food and drink in general, this is one of the reasons why throughout church history, gluttony has been considered one of the seven deadly sins, that, that gluttony really is that, that inordinate desire to, to make food and drink more important than God. And you just think about in our own culture, for example, the way we use food and drink. We use food oftentimes to comfort us. 
you know, we were soothed by what we eat and what we drink. And so as we walk through something difficult or we revisit some of those wounds from the past, it's, it's easy for us to use food and to use drink as a way to soothe our soul to comfort us. We also use food and drink in a way to control our future. And so not only do we use food and drink to comfort us, but we also use it as, as a means of, of control. And so you think about the different diets and the different things that we're told that we should eat or we shouldn't eat. And all of those in one way are good. They, they, they remind us that, that our bodies really are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that our bodies do matter. We need to take care of them. But the downside of that is that, that we think by eating the right way or drinking the right way, we can somehow control our future. We can somehow avoid disease or sickness or, or old age or slow that down. And yet the reality is that ultimately Jesus is the one who is the bread of life, who comforts us in a way that nothing else can. And he controls our future uh, in a way that nothing else can. And so again, our hunger and our thirst really tell us more about our soul than what our than, than our stomach. And so one of the things that, that you notice throughout the scriptures is that when we eat and we drink, we have this opportunity to, re- be, to be reminded of what really matters most, who it is that really satisfies us. This lover who gives himself to us in food and drink, and he invites us to open our own heart to receive his love and to be satisfied in a way that nothing else can satisfy us. And so as we close, let me just share three things very practically that you can do with food and drink maybe this coming week. Here's the first thing, and I'll cover these very quickly. We can abstain or we can fast. This really is a discipline to remind ourselves that we will not be ruled by anything. And so when you choose to abstain from food for a certain amount of time, you're saying, I'm not going to be ruled by anything other than Jesus. And he alone is the one that strengthens me and sustains me. And so we can abstain from food. Second thing we can do is we can ask as a discipline. This is to remind ourselves that we do not live on bread alone. You think about the, 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 the Our Father where Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father who is in heaven. And he says that we're to ask for daily bread. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we can also announce as a discipline, praying before meals as a way to to proclaim that we belong to a different kingdom and there's a a greater banquet that's coming where we'll eat and drink again. And even that simple discipline, that simple act, that public act of being in a restaurant or even at home and and announcing the kingdom is a way for us to be reminded that God is our king and and heaven will be like sharing an incredible banquet. And and as we gather in a restaurant in Ann Arbor or whatever as you live, when when you pray, you're really announcing that you and I belong to that kingdom. It's oftentimes characterized as a great banquet where there'll be good food and there'll be good drink and there'll be good fellowship around a table. And so food was never meant to be an end in itself. It's a means for receiving strength and nourishment, but also a physical reminder of our spiritual need for God. The act of eating and drinking is meant to fill us, but also remind us that our deepest hunger and thirst can only be met in Christ. Father, we come before you today and we love you. Thank you that you have saved us through your son, Jesus, and he is the way and the truth and the life. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And we thank you that we're saved by grace through faith and that you fill us with your spirit and that you promise to meet us in the act of eating and drinking and to give us your grace, to give us your life and to sustain us and to satisfy us. And so I pray that today, as we hear this message, we'll be reminded once again that food really has a lot more to say about our soul than it does our stomach. And Jesus, 
you are the bread of life. You are the one who fully and completely satisfies us. We look to you for our comfort, for our joy, for our salvation. We love you and we praise you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.